0: We knew that we wanted it to be a place where everyone at the company could capitalize on their skills to provide the best value for the company. And for us, a key part of that was making sure that it was a really collaborative and inclusive environment. This is Get Shit Done, a show about female
1: entrepreneurs who are not willing to settle for 4% and the stories and steps they took to scale their companies to the top through traction by getting shit done and growing on their own terms. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done Podcast, Queens. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer. We are the originators of the Fuck 4% movement. And when we say 4%, we're talking about total revenues that are generated by female-founded companies. We deserve better, we can do better, and we will together. So many of y'all know that we interview women entrepreneurs on this podcast who have successfully scaled, and that can look like a multitude of things. So it can be bootstrapped, it can be VC-backed, but it's not just one way of scaling. And if you're a new queen here, I did an experiment a few months ago to learn about women entrepreneurs who have bootstrapped their way to scale. Finding more women who have bootstrapped and telling those stories was so important to me because the reality is that the majority of companies start by bootstrapping and then 9 out of 10 companies will not raise institutional capital. But that doesn't mean you can't scale. I want y'all to know about your options. So you are choosing a scaling solution that is in alignment with your vision, so in this entire experiment, I have been able to connect with some badass queens like Jen Leach, the founder of Trusts. She grew her company 250% in the last three years and ended 2020 with $27 million in revenue as a bootstrapped business. Go on ahead and play that back. Yes, $27 million and bootstrapped. Today, you're gonna to learn how Jen built alongside of her customers, which led to scale. And it's so crazy because Jin reminds me so much of how IDEO approaches innovation and how this approach not only created excellent execution but more importantly, built out this relation-based sales process that she walks you through that amplified the reputation in the space as one of the go-tos in the market. So if you haven't yet, Make sure to click subscribe so you know when episodes drop to get free traction tips from queens like Jen every single week. And make sure to head on over to rate and review our podcast. This really helps us serve more queens like you and slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for support on your scaling journey, head on over to slash join and go on ahead and join the Fuck 4% movement of women gaining traction and growing on their own terms it's the most important to us on your own terms and you know the drill get that pen and paper on out because you're about to get schooled on traction by queen jen leach all right jen welcome to get you
0: done thanks so much for having me i'm excited
1: Yes. And we're going to preface this conversation with, you're going to hear stuff in the background because we both have things happening in the environment around us. Also it's COVID. So I think we've all get it now. We're going to put that out there, but it's still going to be an amazing conversation because Jen has done some amazing things and she's going to drop gems today. But before we kick it off and go into all the amazing growth you've experienced entrepreneur, what I love to do is always take it back to really what you were doing before. So yeah, what were you doing before you even launched Trust? And then what led you to building this company?
0: Yeah. So right before I started Trust, I was working at a company called Linden Lab, which is a company that produces Second Life, the the online virtual world. And I worked there for about four years. Fantastic. It was a fantastic experience, fantastic people there. Uh, And in fact, my two co-founders were people that I was working with at my previous company. And in terms of what led me to to start this new company, it had a lot to do with the growth, the professional growth that I did at that while I was at that previous company, I decided that I wanted to level up in terms of my degree of success as an engineer. So I was working as an engineer at that company as building first internal tools and then APIs To serve tens of thousands of requests per second and doing performance analysis and and improvements, et cetera. And in trying to level myself up as a professional, I began doing research and I found some paper from Bell Labs that talked about characteristic of individuals that that did that to like the top, you know, few percent of. I would say. The, the greatest return on investment essentially for for their work and what led to that. And they talked about three particular things, initiative, leveraging other people's work and being able to manage yourself. And those were really interesting and new for me at the time. And I kind of like doubled down on, on training myself to be able to do those things really well. And at the end of a few years, that led me to realizing that I want to start my own company. <laughs> I love that. So those three things, what were they again? It's initiative, yep. being able to leverage other, other people's work toward an end result and managing yourself.
1: I love this because it just, it reminds me so, I mean, in entrepreneurship in general, the leveraging part stood out so much to me, especially based on where we're at and get shit done today, because we're like, look, we don't want to be the be all end all for women entrepreneurs. We want to connect the dots and leverage all these other people so we can curate what they need based on the stage they're at. So that stood out, but also obviously all the other components are super essential. So then you have this revelation. You're like, I want to go into business for myself. How did you decide this business and explain to us like, what is trust?
0: yeah so the incentive for myself and my two co-founders as well kind of all had like a shared sense of what we were trying to do and we were trying to build a kind of company and actually we we weren't even sure what we were going to be building or doing as a company we just knew what kind of a company we wanted to be we knew that we wanted it to be a place where everyone at the company could capitalize on their skills to provide the best value for the company and for us, a key part of that was making sure that it was a really collaborative and inclusive environment because we had found that, well, for one thing, teams deliver, they get, getting back to that, you know, being able to leverage other people's work for results, that that's really around... Being able to have an environment where people's ideas build on each other, mm-hmm. you get significantly better results when, when people can work together effectively as a team rather than a bunch of individual contributors. So for us, having an environment that was highly collaborative and enabled people to, to contribute to an end result as a team rather than a bunch of people working individually was a key part of what we were looking for in our company. And so that we had a vision for how we thought that would work, and we wanted to build that vision. So that was that was kind of the nugget behind driving how the company might operate. Initially, we decided to build a product and then that didn't pan out. We pivoted and turned into a consultancy. Amazing. So then the work that
1: you're consulting on is a, a lot around like security stuff, a lot of the, the technical backend things. What input for our, our audience that is not familiar? What is that specific line of work that you're in?
0: Right. So we are a software development consultancy. We do, in particular, we work on on systems where you have to serve some complex end user needs that aren't really well understood. So it requires a lot of going and really understanding what what the users are, what their needs are, and coming up with a a new idea for how to solve a complex problem. And then we build that, and and we build it in a way that's reliable, scalable, and secure. And so that because of those are our areas of competency and expertise that led us to end up doing work for the federal government because they have a lot of systems <laughs> that a are lot complex. Of broken systems, <laughs> a lot of broken systems that need to be reworked to actually serve citizens well. And we're passionate
1: about that. I, I love this, especially the focus. And, and she's repeated now repetitively the, the competency part is like really going in on the things that you're good at. What really stood out to me, and there's so many people on on this season that from the little experiment I did and one of the women entrepreneurs group, I wanted to know who are the women who have gotten beyond a million ARR bootstrapped. And you're the one that, one of the people that raised your hand and said, yep, done it. Um, And what stood out so much to me is the fact that you grew, I mean, you said
0: 250% in the last three years and then That was actually an underestimate, I realized. We doubled twice and then grew another 50% on top of that. So it's actually something more like 400 or 450%, yeah. Oh, even better.
1: Okay, (laughs) so correction. That makes me even happier for you. So that put you at the 27 million mark. When did you start this business? Uh, When? In 2012. In 2012, yeah. So that's incredible growth, especially as a bootstrap company. Because I think so often in this space, you know, I've heard plenty of content that is just like you can only scale that fast if you have all this outside capital, which is is not the only way to do it. I think that's one way, and it can be a fabulous way if it's the appropriate vehicle for that business. But you are a great testament that it can be done in another way. So when you got started, though, you 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 focused on the competency part, but I'm sure since 2012 to now, you know, there have been you know, pivots or just further iterations and you've built on top of what you built on the foundation. From when you started in 2012, what did you initially focus on that perhaps you didn't have, you know, that the, the offerings that you have today? Every founder, it seems like, who has been able to accomplish
0: what you have did something really well in the beginning. So in the, for the first three years or so, we were focused on product development and I know, building a specific product. And which which we then set aside and pivoted to our consulting model. So in terms of like technical output, we pretty much scrapped everything. Yeah, we you know decommissioned our app from the App Store, you know, all that. So but from a company building perspective, we had really, and this kind of gets back to the reason we started the company and like what we value and what we care about. We had really strong patterns for collaboration. My co-founders and I all really do. We have a really deep value of listening to other perspectives, uh, changing our minds, being wrong. And that has been key all the way along. And that's a big part of of what we infuse into our company today. Mm,
1: That's interesting. It reminds me a lot of how IDEO works, just how they (laughs) built up in terms of like that collaboration. Again, they bootstrapped that company, but the collaboration piece, I actually just finished. I don't know if you've read this, Tribal Leadership. It's a really amazing book. I haven't read that. Yeah. It's it's really good. It just talks about like the diff. There's like five different stages if you're lucky and that a company can accomplish. And they say like the the best is five. It's like when people are really into it and like they have like more of a we mentality. We're going to change the world and everyone has that buy-in. But they're like most companies, if you're lucky, will get to stage four, which still has a we mentality. And the author talks a lot about IDEO and the collaboration part and it sounds like you your team had those synergies of saying we all believe in this and we're really good at these things and we infuse that into to what we do on a daily basis in our work and that shows up that's what clients want and it also is proven out in your output and what you can do if you're on the same same page
0: you know, it's hilarious that you should mention that actually, because when we started the company, we had a conversation about what are some of the reference companies that we that we think are worth modeling after. And IDO is on that list. And Incredible. we talked about them a bunch. We like learned about them, and and now actually we're we're quite good friends with IDEO. Um, and we we've developed a relationship with with their COO and with their board of directors, uh, chief of their something. I'm not sure what title is, but strong agreement. Like their philosophy is so aligned with ours that we're like, what can we learn from you? Because we're seeing it's leading this to similar business results. It's it's the similar patterns are emerging. I I love this and it
1: immediately stood out because I'm like, that sounds a lot like audio and I respect audio a lot. They're, they're just in terms of being mission-based and I think a lot of people always ask this like, um, what are examples of mission-driven impact companies that do well? And I'm like, there's plenty of them out there. Um, so yes, you you remind me so much of that. Cool. And now I have to read that book. Yes, yes, I think you would really enjoy it. So a couple things you attributed to your, your, the company's success and what you and your team have really built out. And it's not a surprise now that I'm listening to you. You had mentioned that you have a relation-based sales process, which is, it goes back to what you just said about collaboration. A lot, a lot of what IDEO does is really around that relationship. And honestly, I think if we say this to founders all the time, sell or die, and a lot of them feel like it's icky, but I'm just like, I have to help them shift their mindset. I I had to do this today with the founder where they think it's icky. Like you think of this icky salesperson that was you know, five o'clock families eating dinner and they're just like knocking on the door and you're like, get out of my way. But it's really serving in my opinion. If you have something that you're delivering and you're selling it to someone, you're serving them. And so can you walk us through what does that like relation-based sales process look like on your end? and, And why do you think that it has been such a huge component
0: of the growth that you have all experienced. So you drew the exact right parallel of our collaborative mindset to our sales processes, because that's that's exactly it. Like I think I literally said that the other day to somebody. Our, our philosophy and and a lot of the value that we bring when we work with clients is this really high empathy relationship building style of engagement. And so we do that when we talk to users, where we try to really understand their needs truly, not just like what we think they should be and where we then also in how we work with clients and and understanding like what they're trying to achieve. And then one of the, the things that sometimes happens is we'll like bridge the gap between what they thought that they were trying to build and what users are saying and and we'll build that that connection and so part of what we do in our sales process is we do a like show not tell approach to sales where we work with our potential clients the way that we would work with users so we go to them and we say what are your needs like you know help us understand you and if we can ha- do something, if we do something that serves that need, great. We would love to work with you. Here's how we work. And if you aren't looking for that need, we're not interested in working with you. And we aggressively walk away. <laughs> yes, I I love this so much because
1: there's just a common thread that keeps coming out of these conversations. And the top thing is focus, focusing on who you can best serve, because a lot of times founders like we're for everybody and it's like no you're not for everybody unless you're air <laughs> you're not for everybody. And then the the other part of this is really saying like this is we're going to focus on this thing but more importantly we're going to listen to what the end user said they needed because so often founders will be behind I had this conversation today with the founder they focus so much on product development and not sales. So then they're like, I'm trying to talk to the developer, I'm trying to do this and da-da-da-da. And then that fear of I get to market and nobody wants it. I'm like, the way that you can, you can kind of get around that is if you're building in parallel with them by actually building, like you said, that relationship, having that collaboration and building alongside and understanding along the way, you'll learn more. Because I even do this now in our sales process where I just listen. of my conversation is literally just listening to them. That's it. 100%. That's it. So like, what does your sales process like look like? Is it like calls with people? Like, are there sets of questions that you and your team have built out? Like, I'm sure it's transformed over time, but what what insight can you give us into what that looks like? Because it seems, I mean, it's obviously very powerful given the growth you've
0: had. Our sales process is tailored partly to the fact that almost all of our business is referral driven so our existing clients either extend or expand or they talk about us to other business owners or other leaders Um, and so we get a lot of incoming interest that we respond to and so a lot of our sales process in that case is qualification you know, when we, when somebody contacts us, we set up a call, we just say like, Hey, let's just talk about what you're trying to do and, and, and just listen, as you say. And then we watch for, we have like a list of checkboxes of this is what our clients should look like. And one of them is that they should care about user outcomes. They don't care about user outcomes. We're not just working with them. They should be interested in actually doing agile style development. So that's, that's another thing thing that we hit sometimes is that they'll say, yeah, we, we care about what the user's experience, but we want to have, uh, we, we don't want you to release products early, right? Or we don't, we don't want to test this with users. And we're like, sorry, not the place. <laughs> can't do what you're asking for. That's not, it's not going to work for us. Yeah. So, so we have uh, the, we, th- those kinds of checkboxes that we've identified that ends up also for us leading to we, we also, there are certain kinds of projects we don't do like call like workforce uh, augmentation type of projects where mm-hmm. they say, like, oh, can you just add like a couple people to this team, you know, and and we we don't do that because again, we care about user outcomes. And so we feel as though if we can't really truly have, you know, have an impact that we're not interested in, in doing that project. So, so we have the checklist, we go through the checklist and, and validate where there is and isn't a match Pardon the cross traffic. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> Hi, friend. Okay. Yeah, right. And then from there, we, we determine whether it's worth having another conversation or not. And then, and then from there, you know, it's a question of understanding if we think, think they're a potential client, then we have to decide what the size and shape of that engagement might, might look at. And then there are different stages we go through to try to align on what it is that they actually need. That's
1: so fascinating because the beautiful thing about even in the selling process is you get more of this like clarification of who you best serve. Like I'm sure from when you started, you were like, you all were like, okay, we're going to start here. But over time, you even got more refined to have that checklist. Like, yes, no. Yes. Like we even have that get you done. It's like we serve female entrepreneurs that are building scalable businesses and want to focus on traction. If you're just looking for a check, we're not for you. Here are some references, Precisely. but we're that's that's not our world. We are traction focused. And so exactly you have to start somewhere to get to that point. So when you first started, like was it that clear, or what were some of those those revelations over time to help you get to you're very precise now? Like and it and it shows in, in the results you have, but what, were there any like differences from when you started to what it looks like now? And how did you get
0: to that level of clarity? Huge differences. Uh, so when we first started, we did not have a really clear idea of our customers were at all. We just had people coming to us and saying, actually, what, how, the reason we decided to pivot to consultancy from building products is that while we were building products, we had people coming to us and saying, could you build this for us? Right. So we we had people coming and soliciting us as people to build products for them. So at first it was just a question of, okay, well, people are asking us to build this thing. Should we do that or not? It seems like an interesting project. Sure. Okay you know, by and large, it was just a question of like, can we do it? Is it interesting? And then when we started taking those projects, we began to see patterns probably within the first couple, we certainly was in the first year or two, we began to see patterns of like, of like some projects are working out better than expected. Some are working out less well than expected. And one of the, the things that we did that was really high leverage is, so we do a lot of Self-education as as a leadership team, and one of the references that found to be really helpful is Jim Collins's work. Yes, I, yes, good to great. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good to great. And then he has this concept of a flywheel, uh, and he has a monograph he wrote called "Turning the Flywheel." And one of the things that he talks about there is look at the things in your business that have caused outsized results, things that have far out outperformed your expectations and things in the opposite direction, things that have had far underperformed your expectations and try to figure out like, what are the characteristics of the ones that exceeded versus underperformed? And then if you look at the ones that outperformed, then you can turn that into essentially a model for what drives your business engine. And then you can double down on the successes. And that that is essentially what we've been trying to
1: do. Oh, I love this because I'm sure everyone listening, if you're an OG, get shit done queen, you have heard us say it over and over. You are trying to find your books, meaning what is your 20% producing 80% of your results? And of course, at the beginning stages, you have the test to even figure out what that looks like. But if you are measuring constantly, you can get to that 20%, you know, pretty, you know, really good amount of time. And, or at least work with something so you can lean in better to something to actually optimize for those results. So I love that, and especially Jim Collins. Good to great is amazing. What was it? He had another book too. It was about like I think it was learning off of the the ones that the ones that actually built built to last. Built to last. Yes. Mm-hmm. I haven't done I haven't read that one yet, but I've heard it's really amazing. Another thing that you actually attributed, you have this amazing sales process. You're constantly listening because you're collaborating through the entire process with your end user, your customer. So you're there. But another thing that you mentioned was what helped you to strengthen those relationships. And you said you get a lot of referrals. You built trust through user research to get where you are today. So what does that look
0: like? So in terms of the, the user research component of it, so there, is there, there are two different lenses to that. You know, what one of them is the lens of our consultancy, the clients of our clients, right? Uh, or the users of our clients. And then there are our clients themselves, which are also a different class of users. So, but in terms of our clients' users, there's, there's a really strong component there as well. And that's actually, I would say, a core part of our product is our ability to go into a user population and capture capture the the issues that they're facing and then translate that into products that will solve those problems and so part of what we've done to build that competency is we've built out a pretty robust designer research operation uh, we have a team which of designers which are Not only do they understand how to put together interfaces that serve user needs, but they they have a deep competency in performing the research in the first place. And so we have a a beginning phase to to most contracts, which we call discovery and framing, where the research team goes in and talks to users to understand what, what their needs are, and then tries to turn that into something which is useful for our product teams to build. And then, notably, not only do we do that—you know, it's, it, I'm going to just extend this slightly—that not only do we do that on at like the graphical side, but also on just the technological side. The practice of having this user-focused approach started actually with the very early contracts with infrastructure, with building out systems to automate the production of software.
1: Mm.
0: And so we we use a user-focused approach in building out that and before we even had a design team so it, we had and we it was it was when we had been doing that for a little while that we began to realize like this is a competency we should really capitalize on so you you all noticed like we need to add this thing in but we
1: didn't you didn't have the design team and the research team before but you're like we need to create a system around it so you just was it just going to using the current tools you had to put that system in place. And then you realize, wow, this is actually something that we could leverage with our current clients to drive a better end product.
0: From a philosophical perspective, we, we believed in, in, you know, actually serving user needs and, and my co-founder Mark and I, two engineers from the founding team would would be going into clients saying like we have to talk to users like that's the first thing we have to do and coming in with that that approach and we weren't really even thinking about it from a like a design or ux perspective we were just like this is this is obvious right like so yes. you, don't you have to talk to people <laughs> you know <laughs> what are you building otherwise <laughs> right right like why why are you doing it uh, it was when we began building contracts for the federal government that we began realizing that we had to have a, like a proper contingent of designers in our team and we at first we started hiring contract designers and it pretty quickly became obvious that we needed to have that comp- the team in-house in because they were such an integral part of our team and and our core competency as a business so that's when we decided to build them. i i love this because again, it keeps going back to that
1: collaboration. It's like you really listening to when your clients are coming to you saying, we need this product, you're gonna deliver something that fulfills that need because you did the work to say, "We're you're gonna have a product that people are actually gonna wanna use because they told us they're gonna wanna use this. Where so often I see founders that wanna build especially if they're like engineers or developers, their their mind is always i want to build the coolest freaking thing ever but sometimes the sexiest thing is not the thing people actually care (laughs) about um actually oftentimes it's not and so they do the bells and whistles but then you're like no we don't even start on anything until the user research and it makes a lot of sense because now you actually deliver something that gets utilized those people then come back to you from a retention perspective and then create those referrals, which actually brings me to my my next, my next question for you, which is the other thing you said that has been integral into your your growth trajectory has been reputation management and how you've been able to get get the reputation you have today. So can you walk us through like what has that been like for you? Because it sounds like you don't have to invest in marketing because you're, I mean, really your your clients are your ambassadors. So you know, what do you think has been a huge part of getting you to the place you are in terms of your reputation?
0: Yeah, I mean, another way of phrasing that question is why do our clients refer us? Yeah, um, and what we have, we've we've actually asked that question to some of our clients directly in the past, and so there are a couple of different lenses. It's like what they tell us, what we think, that kind of thing. When we ask this of our clients, you know, what what value they felt thought that we brought to them, Interestingly, one of the themes we heard was trust. So we are definitely building products for them, but the way in which we built them felt faithful to their intentions. Wow. That's,
1: I really like that faithful to their intentions. Put it on a shirt. Love that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That is good. So, and then also, you know, and then in terms of, from our perspective in reflecting on our own work, what we feel had led to a lot, to a lot of that, it, what what I would call execution, it, but you, there are elements of execution that are really key. And part of that is the user research component, part of that, and making sure that we actually like listen to the users, build the things that, that they need. And then part of that is also a, a the philosophy of, building building the simplest thing that could possibly work to serve those needs and and really doing agile development, you know, releasing a product before it's ready, letting people give you feedback on it, being okay with building the wrong thing and having been wrong and changing your mind. So it's it's kind of the standard stuff that you think of in agile development, but we we really double down on that. Uh, and we are very, I, I dare I say religious about shipping early. And in fact, we would, for us, we consider the standard to be, you should be shipping production software or software to a production level environment within the first or second iteration of of your project. And
1: there's, what I love about this is there's so much transparency in the process. And I can, I can understand where that, that faithfulness comes in and the belief in what you all deliver on, because it, it actually reminds me if I met this amazing woman recently who was like a managing partner at a a huge consultancy. And she like blew it up before she left in a a, a metaphorical way because she actually, her background was as an, an engineer and realized that they were doing a project that was, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars and realizing like through this entire process, they were supposed to deliver on for this company that it was just like smoke and mirrors. It was a lot of like different things being put together through like duct tape and then saying, hey, we're going to just give this to you, but it's probably going to collapse at some point, but we charge you this premium. And she kept saying throughout the process, like this is not right. Cause the the engineer in her, the designer in her was just like, no, this thing is not going to work. And it, in good faith, we cannot put this out. They didn't listen to her. And she was like, had to report it. And then she was like, I know they're going to let me go because they'd much rather keep all that money than actually having integrity. But that scenario just came to my mind as you were talking about this, because you're being, you have such a high level of integrity with the client and transparent and communicate along the way saying, you don't know this world. That's why you're coming to us. But here's what to expect. We're going to do this. You should be able to do it by this date, because I can tell you, even as in the startup space, a lot of founders flail because they're like, I'm not technical. I don't really know what to do. And they get taken for a ride where you all are actually delivering on the thing within the time frame that you say
0: you're going to do it. Yeah, it's funny. One of our unofficial mottos is ship actually. <laughs> Put it on the shirt. <laughs> shirt.
1: No, it's true. It's like, there's so, there's a lot of, I think more times than not, There's good intentions, but a lack of follow through. And then there's also some people that have bad intentions, but I like to think more people are good, but it's people get so focused on the money part that they're not adding the value. So that is massive. So you've done all these amazing things. You know, you've created a very, very ideocentric type of thing, but you're doing it in a trust way. So that's awesome. What do you feel are some of the mistakes that you've made along the way as you all have grown to this point? I mean, you're doing 27 million now and I mean, since 2012, that's such amazing growth, but obviously some of the, the best lessons are, are come from those mistakes. So what do you feel are some of those top things that come to mind that you want to offer to the, the women listening?
0: Mm. Let's see. So if I were to go back several years and give myself advice, some things that I would say include hire a head of people ops earlier. <laughs> we we yeah. did a lot of the people ops functions ourselves and we hired a head of people ops at around 100 employees. We probably should have hired one at 50. I hear that, that a lot. Significantly better. I hear
1: uh-huh. that a lot, especially the, the culture piece and who did I recently listen to? Their story. Damn, what's the what's the company? Anyway, it'll come to me. But one of the companies was saying, oh, Atlassian, the founders, another bootstrap company. They are one of the unicorns without V without VC funding in Australia. And they were saying, you know, the, the founders, when they got to say 50 people actually, even at 50, they yeah. got their people ops had hired in, but realized they didn't put processes in place of like, what is our culture? What do we stand for? What are those values that we want echoed across people? So they're like the first fifty were so different from the next fifty, and it felt like two different companies. Oh wow! Culture is very hard to scale. It's it's so yeah. hard to scale, and I think people we think as, as founders like, oh no, that will take care of itself. Like I know this now in <laughs> company three. I am not the scale out people operations person. I'm the visionary. We need to get to it. Like I need to get us to where we need to go. And I get people rallied in the mission, but I'm not the person to keep you invested in it every single day. I need people that can shepherd you along where I'm like, I'm going to check in with you and I care what you're doing, but I also Need this company to be around so we can utilize your talent and we can make the impact (laughs) we want to make. And so Mm -hmm. I know that now, but like I remember my my former companies, I it was always a second thought. Like, yeah, they'll take care of itself. And then Mm. you see, oh, actually, this is kind of important. Yeah,
0: important. Yeah, we actually we actually sat down and articulated values for the company pretty early on, probably like around gosh, it must been like fifteen employees. And that was a really good decision. yeah but <laughs> you know you know to your point, like it has been incredibly helpful in aligning employees with what we're trying to do and why and and getting the right people on the bus kind of thing. so that that was huge positive, yeah. And I love that,
1: too, especially the values piece. I think we try to get people interested in the <laughs> level of equity and compensation. And I'm just like, that's great, and you'll get talent, but you want people who are bought in especially when you're at this stage. Like you have what, you said 100 employees now? We're about 125 now. 125, amazing. But it's still not like thousands and thousands. Like the the superpower is the fact that like you can- have that, those values just be your ambassadors or your employees really a lot of times, but they can't be if you don't get them bought into something. So I love that, that's amazing, amazing advice. And I haven't even gotten to the point of the 125. So congrats to you. And our whole motto here is fuck 4%. So you all will keep hearing it because we need to redefine the narrative. So 50% of entrepreneurs nearly are women entrepreneurs. We only make up 4% of total business revenues. You've been able to give 4% the middle finger by growing your company on your own terms and doing it with such integrity, doing it by you know building these relationships. What's next in terms of your trajectory? You said that you're looking at towards 38 million now. What do you think is gonna help you get there now
0: so you can continue to give 4% the middle finger?
1: Yeah.
0: What, what I think is going to be a big boost up for us is then uh, that last year, we, this, this flywheel concept from Jim Collins, um, last year we articulated our flywheel. We came up with what we thought it was, we wrote it down. And then once we did that, it was super interesting to, to look at it and say, where, where are we doing well? And where do we need to do better? And it was an extremely useful exercise because it clarified a part of our business that we Had just been kind of like filling in and hedging around the edges of like, you know, like, oh, some people over here can add, you know, help with that. Oh, some people over here can help with that. And then it clarified that, no, this is actually a really central capability that we have to build out. It was a whole stage of our flywheel that we were like, we're not supporting that as well as we need to. That has to be better. And so this year is focused on on improving that particular core competency uh, and and building out that part of the business and really investing in it. And I think that's going to drive our growth.
1: Oh, and I love this because it shows the level of focus here where it's like you all are still, of course, you've added, but are still leaning into areas you started with. And you're like, there's still room for improvement where Huge mistake I see founders make is like when they're like, we're gonna jump to this entirely different audience and different thing completely when they haven't even like gotten the most out of this. So the fact that you're taking that moment, you're like, we still have more to extract from this area right
0: here and be the best. Well, and and it's not necessarily uh, opposed to entering, let's say, new markets, right? Either. So in in this one, I, I. just this week actually saw Jim Collins' talk. I had the, the oh, privilege wow. of being able to see him give a presentation. And one of the things that he pointed out about uh, expanding the scope of your business and, and uh, capturing new audiences is that uh, w- one of the keys there is that you're not necessarily changing your business dramatically. What you're, you're you're preserving your engine, your business engine, your flywheel, and you're identifying new areas where that can be applied or expanded. That matches perfectly. Yes, because again, it's
1: it's the books, right? It's like you set the foundation and you say, we're gonna do this well, but that becomes your template that now you can templatize across other categories and scale out. And now, and you've heard y'all have heard me say this before, now Amazon runs your life. <laughs> they <set it laughs> literally with books and they templatize that across so many. So I'm really excited about that for you, especially in this space. So then based on what you're focused on today and this next level of growth,
0: where can we support you? Who's we? <laughs> Anyone listening? Uh, I, I mean, honestly, the, my, my response to that, like this is my internal response is like, you know, go out and make an impact.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love make shit that. happen. <laughs> Okay, now everyone has their marching orders. Go do it, go do it. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you wanna learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, Queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to SheGetsShitDone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. And special shout out to our squad, Kayla Algy and Stephanie Montana, For producing this episode. I also love hearing from you, friend. So head on over to the gram and hit me up at get shit done queen and let me know what did you learn or what do you want to learn more about. Until next time, Queen, I'm Alex Fatdorf, reminding you, you've got this. Now go out there and get shit done.